um, something that I learned when I was in grad school is just what, when you are an outsider to a community, um, how do you listen? How do you observe? How do you be respectful of the space um, that you're entering and the people that you are encountering? So I... Hello, hello. Happy Monday. It's Nadine. I'm so excited to jump into this week's episode. This is In Her Lens, a podcast about the women behind the films and their stories. Episode two, and I am chatting with the terrific Melinda James. Melinda James is a black and Thai cinematographer from the sunny state of California, USA. Her work spans documentaries, narratives, installations, commercials and music videos. Centering her work on women, QT, BIPOC, and underrepresented communities, Melinda recently DP'd and co-directed Oklahoma is Black, a poetic portrayal of black life in Oklahoma City, which was nominated for Best Documentary Short at Black Star and DC Black Film Festivals. She's worked with Hulu, Netflix, Disney Channel, FX, and Pandora, and she was also included on the list of mind-blowing cinematographers by Emmy Rossum and Free the Work. In this episode, Melinda and I talk about her journey to the filmmaking world through her love and education in sociology, her relationship with viewfinders and translating elements into visuals that reach for something inexplicable, about the differences between big commercial jobs, music videos, and her curiosity for video installation. And in connection to her work in Oklahoma is Black, the importance and influence of footage and archives on who lived and how. Melinda creates images that are rooted in the nuance of people and their everyday, believing that the space between images is where dialogue really happens. This conversation is really something special, and I'm very excited for you guys to join us. So here is Melinda on In Her Lens. No worries. I love how many plants you have around you. Oh, thank you. Melinda, I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you for joining me. And I can't wait to delve into all things film and cinematography with you and your story. Um, But before we do, should we start off with a little round of rapid fire questions, kind of get the mind working, get to know you a little bit better? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Um, Dawn or dusk? Dusk. (laughs) Tea or coffee? Um, Tea. Wine or beer? Beer. Travel to space or to the bottom of the ocean? Space. Favorite subject in school? English. That's also mine. Uh, a subject that you wish they taught you in school? Finance. <sighs> Always. Board game or card game? Board games. Mm. Appetizer or dessert? Appetizer. A city you think people should visit? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, New Orleans. Uh, a city that you would like to visit? Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. Three-hour movie or a 10-hour series? 10-hour series. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The last thing that you read? Uh, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Oh, that's a really good one. A thing that makes your heart melt? Acts of tenderness between people and animals. And animals, both. Uh, Beach or mountains? Mountains. The last thing that you photographed? I think probably, oh, a baby bird that fell out of a tree. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. It's okay. Um, okay, that's good. Uh, fall yeah. or spring? Fall. Uh, an unmissable part of your routine? Emails, unfortunately. 
It's very real. It's a very realistic answer. Um, if you could have one cuisine for the rest of your life, what would it be? Anything, uh, anything having to do with Thai food. Texting or calling? Uh, my dad would be upset at this answer, but texting. <laughs> and the last thing that you watched? Uh, something that popped up recently on my Netflix is a, a show by David Attenborough. And, and I think it's like a series. And the first one was about color and how color um, appears in nature, how animals see different colors. I don't know what the show is called, though, but I... I will look it up and link it, uh, link it in the show notes. But there's some okay. really cool things in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, Melinda, I've been following your work for a while, and I'm just such a big admirer of the images and uh, your visual storytelling. So let's just start right at the start. Where are you from? Tell us a bit about your childhood. What did home life look like for you? Home life, childhood. So right now, I'm based in Los Angeles, California. And I was born in Yuba City, California, so I spent most of my life here. Um, I lived for a few years in, in Florida, but um, yeah, most of my life has been here in California. I'm an only child. I grew up, um, yeah, Yuba City, Linda, Marysville, that area is kind of very small, agricultural, um, predominantly white and, and Asian, um, specifically like uh, Hmong folks. So yeah, my childhood is like, I don't know, sometimes parts of it are, are pretty complicated growing up in that kind of space as someone who is Black and someone who is uh, mixed race. Um, but there are things that I, I find um, that I'm very fond of. I think my appreciation for nature, which didn't really come until later in life, was because of where I grew up. But once I kind of like mm -hmm. left that town I was like I, I don't want anything that reminds me of that place but um, being older and spending more time outdoors I I realized like I realized that oh you know growing up and playing in the orchards or playing in the river and spending all this time outside was actually really nice and something that's very important in in my life now so those memories are like very very fond but um, in terms of kind of how I, I wasn't really like a, an incredibly artistic child, I don't mm. think. I, I still can't draw my, you know, when I'm trying to draw people, they're stick figures. <laughs> um, I have a hard time interpreting real objects. Most of my the stuff that I do is like kind of abstract and weird. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I kind of spent a lot of time alone as an only child, kind of making up my own adventures. Yeah, my parents split up when I was younger, so I kind of split my time between California and Florida and and New York. Are there any films that you distinctly remember from that time? Uh, I I think I was really into Disney films. Mm. Like the, those are the films that my parents bought me. So I and we kind of collected them. So I remember I had this bookshelf, and it just any time a new Disney movie came out, we went and bought the the VHS and I would spend all day like watching them but yeah everything was animated I didn't really see some of the early movies I remember like Ninja Turtles I remember that was a thing so anything kind of related to comic books mm -hmm. or action figures um, those were the kind of movies and films that uh, that I was into but yeah I wasn't I wasn't really into into movies in a big way. I wasn't like my parents weren't taking me to the theaters all the time. Um, yeah, I just they were like fun fun things to do and spend time with occasionally. 
do you know where you think your love for visual storytelling, like when is the first time that you picked up a viewfinder of some sort? Yeah, I probably had to have been maybe like, I don't know. Do you remember those, those uh, toy viewfinders where they had like the circular discs and. And you click them when the image changes. Yeah. 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 I know that's a little different because you're looking at images like slides essentially, but you aren't necessarily like creating them. Mm -hmm. But I think that was the first time that I would like look into something and kind of look at the, look at the world. And I remember my, I used to have this like camera that I would take a bunch of photos with, but I would take pictures and not really look at the pictures that I made after. But I, I feel like around that time I was probably getting into the idea of, of like looking, but not actually knowing what that meant or what that actually translated to. So that didn't, yeah, I didn't really put all of that together until much, much later in life. Um, when I first got like this handy cam, my mom bought me when I was like 21. And what did, what did going to university look like for you? Cause you got a bachelor's and then a master's as well. So what, what did those two look like? And, and when did you kind of stumble upon, upon film as a thing that you could do as a career? Yeah. So for undergrad, I went to Chico state and um, I thought I was going to be a researcher. Mm-hmm. I was studying. Well, I, initially I went for computer science because I, uh-huh. I loved computers. I loved like fixing them. I loved video games. I loved all things like that. So initially I was going to be a computer science major, but that was really difficult. I didn't find a lot of support there. Mm. So I switched my major to psychology um, because, you know, for as much as I'm an introvert and a, a mm. shy person, I... I guess I do kind of like understanding why some people do the things that they do. Mm-hmm. And um, through psychology, I was introduced to sociology and that was a minor and I loved the field so much that I decided to double major in it. So mm-hmm. after undergrad, I, um, yeah, I thought I was like looking at grad schools. I thought I was going to be a researcher. I thought I was going to, that's how I was going to look at issues of race and gender um, and inequality. But um, after undergrad, I moved to San Francisco to do a, a post-bac internship. And during that time, uh, that's when my mom gave me the Handycam. I met somebody and she was like, you should take the 16-week free intro to filmmaking mm-hmm. workshop. I think you'll like it. And that's when I got introduced to film and this idea of looking and um, sharing how I see the like here's a tool that I can use to share how I see the world with other people. And that was just like very, very fascinating to me. Like in that program, we um, had to take on all the different roles. So we had to write something, we had to direct something, we had Mm -hmm. to help other people with the audio or with cinematography. And for me, the thing that clicked with me was cinematography of Mm -hmm. creating these images and how you stitch them together to tell a story or for me, um, create a mood or a tone or an experience. So, so then I was like, I don't want to be a researcher anymore. <laughs> I, so I started looking at grad schools. I didn't know a single thing about film. I didn't know what the top film schools were. I didn't know what that involved. And I, I found UC Santa Cruz. And what appealed to me with that school is that they combine social justice through documentary work. So 
my thesis um, was a documentary film, but the program you could do photo, audio, or or film. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know anything about documentary film. The first doc I made was actually for my application, and I just watched something online. I was like, oh, okay, you interview people, and then you take some B-roll based on what they're saying, and then you stick that on top, and then that's a documentary film. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what I submitted and I, I got in. And that's kind of where my film journey began. Mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. What kind of work do you look at for pe- perspective and inspiration? Yeah, I, I look in, I try to look at all disciplines other than film. I think for a while I was watching film of peers or films that Um, are currently being made and then I started looking at films from the past but not even necessarily the same films that that a lot of folks I think all kind of turn to so I think um, Mm -hmm. folks watched a lot of like Hitchcock or Truffaut or Godard or um, I don't know those are the the first names that kind of come to mind and I've watched like Breathless but I always try to find like I'm a big Agnes Varda fan, mm. um, a big Wong Kar Wai fan. Who else? I like like Lucretia Martel's stuff, but but these days I don't. I actually don't look at film. I I spend a lot of time listening to ambient, wow. um, or like kind of lo-fi mm. computerish music. Um, I look for sounds that kind of break apart, I don't know, things that are like non-traditional. And I try to take those elements and think about how that would translate into film. And uh, and a big source for me that I, I continue to go back to is Clarice Lispector and her book, Agua Viva, because she does something with language where she tries to take these words and she'll put them, she'll write these sentences in a way where where the grammar, I think, to, you know, if you're used to reading something in a particular way, grammar may not make sense, or there might be periods or commas. Yeah, just like punctuation where you wouldn't expect it to be. And there's something that, for me, that happens that gets your mind to, I don't know, whether you have to reread something multiple times or things are fragmented in a certain way. And, And at least in that book, I think what the intention is, is to not actually focus on the words themselves, but what happens in the spaces between the words when they're arranged in this particular way. Mm-hmm. And so I try to think about my filmmaking and my cinematography when I'm allowed to have that space, like what happens when you put together a series of images and sounds, but um, specifically images that necessarily don't look like they go together but it becomes more of this process of weaving so that you're trying to get to something that exists beyond what you're seeing mm-hmm. um, and that there's actually something beneath that where there is, I think, like the inexpressible or something that cannot be uh, named, but it's something that we all feel. I feel like, you know, when we watch something good or when we hear some, some kind of music in this particular way or witness something, a photograph or something, um, and we feel all these things that are like stirring within us, but we can't, we're like trying to use all these words to describe the singular feeling. I think that's the, the place now, at least that I'm, 
I'm interested in, in trying to explore. So a lot of Clarice Lispector. Yeah, that's, and I, that's what excites me so much about, about the arts in general, whether, whether it is music or painting or films, where it is that kind of feeling. That's why I always, when people try to describe their work or tell the story on paper, there's a reason why it's told visually, right? And there's a reason why that's the form that, that it's taking. And that's what I personally always also find really exciting. Technical knowledge, knowledge of past films, like all of these things. I often very much feel extremely out of depth in the filmmaking world because I also didn't necessarily come from a very like artistic family. And there's just so much that people are referencing to all the time. Um, where did your training really begin as a cinematographer? And what would you say to a, a, somebody who is in training on how to kind of proper prep yourself for uh, the, the working world? Because you don't necessarily, like you said, need to know all of the things. Uh, but what are things that you found uh, useful? Yeah, I feel like when I got started in cinematography, it was around the time that DSLRs were first becoming really popular. So I my first short film in that 16 week workshop was done on um, these little tiny cassettes, little mini DV cassettes. So yeah, yeah. buy all these like tiny cassettes and then um, you had to digitize them yourself by capturing, like hooking it up to your computer, capturing it through Final Cut Pro. Mm -hmm. um, I remember sometimes like my setup wasn't that great. And if you accidentally like hit a wire, the whole thing would corrupt and you'd have to like start again from the beginning. So if you oh, wow. recorded 60 minutes to, on this tape, then it would take 60 minutes to like digitize. Um, at that time, DSLRs were becoming really popular. I think like Canon had just come out with their 5D and I couldn't afford a 5D, but what I could afford if I sold all of my camera equipment was uh, the, the Canon T2i. And I feel like that was the place where the, the piece of equipment that really allowed me to start making things and experimenting um, I was able to take, the camera is really small, so I could take it everywhere with me. I was recording my friends. I was recording like, people out doing things, and I learned how to edit, and I learned to understand this is how an image or a series of image can be a story. And from there, I would just set those, those small videos to music, and so I ended up doing music videos, and I feel like that's kind of where um, I got my start was through through music videos for, for indie artists. It wasn't like tr a traditional film school, but in grad school, I still didn't really pick up all the technical parts because I was more about learning practice and theory mm -hmm. and story and how you treat people, how you work with different communities as an outsider. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I, I was, you know, just 24, 25. So I was like, oh, man. I didn't really like learn the things I wanted to learn. I thought this was like a more of a film school. I thought we were going to do more technical things, more hands-on things. Um, but I, what I didn't realize is that that was giving me the foundation for how I view or how I come to pick the projects and how I come to align myself with certain stories, how I work with people, how I treat people and all the technical things I kind of learned just by doing or reading things online or asking people. And still to this day, I'm like, learning. I always felt really insecure about that because everyone could name all the lights. They knew all the technical things. They knew all the cameras and the lenses. Yeah, I felt very, very insecure about that. But I, 
those are things that, that will continue to change because technology just moves so quickly. A way of working in that way is, is, is really what makes you you, right? I think yeah. the way that you show up in a room and all of that and, and how you communicate with people is, um, is what proceeds more than anything and what shapes your work. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that you know, has taken me 10 plus years to learn. And I think that's something um, when I speak to people who are interested you know, whether they're young or, or older, when I speak to people who are interested in getting into this field, you know, they, they want to know, is it better if I just go out and do it? Is it better if I go to film school? I kind of say, I mean, there are benefits to both. You go to right. film school, the, the parts that's beneficial about film school is that you get access to resources, you get a safe space to try new things and kind of fail, and you get to meet peers and you get to meet mentors. Um, and the part about doing it yourself is that it's, I don't know. I feel like you kind of, you kind of get knocked around a lot, um, mm. but you learn really quickly um, about what works and what doesn't work, but it can be more difficult because uh, I, I think that space, you kind of have to learn how to navigate yourself, but then you also save a lot of money. You're not um, spending like a lot of money on tuition mm-hmm. um, and people slowly come to meet people along the way. And I, I think for me, the most important thing is to know what you're trying to do in this space because Mm. as you continue to progress if you don't really know the reason why you're here you can kind of be I think misguided or you might Mm. follow trends or try to go in this particular way but if you know what you're about and you and you're confident in that all the other things I feel like will fall Mm -hmm. into place yeah I I believe in that too just um I don't know if that's like a spiritual way of thinking either, but I do believe that things happen for a reason when you show up in a certain way. Um, your style is really almost, I almost want to say minimal, but really honest and really embracing the screen and the space and allowing your subject to fill it or the environment to fill it. And you also work in such a variety of forms on documentaries and for films, music videos, as we talked about, and branded commercial content. Um, where did you begin to kind of build your style and your on-screen voice? And how would you talk to other people shaping their stories? Yeah, I, when I first started, because I didn't really know any better, everything, I feel like everything I did was really extreme. Mm. Yeah, I would just take things to the extremes. When I first started learning how to color grade, it, I remember there was one time I did this video and it, I just made it look really green, like everything was green or yellow. And it reminded me of like the Ninja Turtles or something, because everyone was like radioactive in that way. Um, and then along the line, I just, I, I realized that things didn't have to be so extreme, mm-hmm. that actually the things that I connected to the most um, were the most simple things. I think the most simple things are actually the most difficult things to do. It's like, how do you, how do you show something in its most simple form? Because I think like simple and basic, there's like a fine line between the two. Mm. Um, and I think that it's very easy to disguise or to hide or to like trick or to manipulate um, using film, using different, all these like techniques, how you move the camera, how you edit things together, how things like are, are colored. So for me, I was just like, I want to try to get to the most simple form of something and that's just I feel like my body of work has just been me trying to get to something that is very simple and where I don't get in the way of myself for my personal projects I also edit them 
And I've always believed that the most powerful editing tool is just the single cut because there's nothing, there's like no transition. There's like, there's no fade. There's no, mm-hmm. there's just a single cut and you, and all you have to rely on is, is timing is rhythm is your intuition. Mm-hmm. So that's been my approach with, with my imagery before I used to like move the camera a lot. Um, I wanted everything to be handheld. I wanted to like follow people And now what I'm interested in is how do you come into a space? How do you look at what's happening, place a camera in a particular place and let life move through the frame? And then how do you find moments that that naturally occur um, and then build something from that? So, yeah, I think it's just about getting to the, the most simple space because I also think once you're there, you make room for all of these other inexpressible things to come through because you're not being distracted by By the noise yeah exactly yeah yeah um well let's delve into your your film work when you choose to be part of a project leaving kind of the money making and this is also a job and you have to make a living just to one side for now um what makes you want to be a part of telling a story and what do you find yourself looking for when somebody comes to you with a project I think the most important thing is time and space because even though this is kind of like a a fast-paced world, I know that I perform the best when I'm given time and space, time to understand what the story is, who the people are, like who, meaning like who are the people we are trying to tell a story about, also the people that I'm trying to work with, especially the director, Mm -hmm. um, get to know who they are, be able to share who I am, and then also have the space because so much about my work is around finding things in the moment. And if I don't have the time and space to do that, I know I'm not going to make something that I'm going to be happy with. That's the first thing I look at. If someone's reaching out to me and they're like, yeah, we're trying to do this next week or (laughs) I'm like, oh yeah. Even if it's like a really compelling story, even if it's someone who has done very great and interesting work, I, I still all will be like, I can't do it because I already know going into it that I'm not going to be able to perform to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's really important, so important to know what works for you and how you work. I think that is something that, you know, in I, I studied uh, uh, acting and, and, and filmmaking uh, also in kind of a hybrid program. And it's so easy to get into the rush of wanting to do work and wanting to be a part of, of projects. Um, but also then you very easily let go of, of, of what you need in order to show up as your best version, be unique to who you are, you know, where you kind of fall into this rhythm along with everyone else. And, um, and it's really important as an artist and as a person and as a woman existing in the world that you know what works for you and you have boundaries around all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really tough. I think, and this is, Something I've been thinking about a lot is like, even though we're still in this pandemic and people are getting vaccinated and mm-hmm. things like at least in Los Angeles are opening up and people are working like work right now is actually, I've never seen <laughs> levels of work like this where just like every, almost every day, but just every week I get multiple emails um, of people wow. asking me to, to come and work. And I'm 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 vaccinated, but even still, I'm just like I 
mentally and emotionally mm-hmm. can't I'm, I'm trying to keep this pace of life that I have have built mm-hmm. but it feels like not only are people trying to go back to that that pace before the pandemic it feels like there's like this uh increased level of energy so I'm trying my best to to protect um yeah the space that I've been been building and trying to trust that you know, even though I'm saying no to a, a lot of work right now that um, that I'm making the right decision and taking my time with, with the project. I find that really, um, inspiring to hear. And I think that it is really fascinating after the past year, how the systems that, uh, are in place, but were, um, kind of running rampantly before the pandemic. And that has come to light this very capitalist consumerist white supremacy that we exist in constant, even before pandemic, obviously people are working against it, but then there was this extended period of time where you get to create this space because you don't have to go anywhere and there is that less interaction with the world and then we're fighting against the walls that uh, have been put in place and it's it does or it always has been a struggle to kind of break that apart and I feel like coming out of this pandemic there's this explosion well on your side of the world and this explosion <laughs> of, of of energy um, that is just blatantly making those systems obvious again. Yeah, yeah. And what what you mentioned too around white supremacy, I think that's like another part that's been incredibly conflicting where before I kind of rode the line of being like, okay, I know what I'm getting. I'm being hired because I'm a I'm a black woman cinematographer and this like this kind of optics is good for this project. I know why I'm being hired for like when Black History Month mm. <laughs> rolls around, I know why my inbox is like incredibly full. Mm. But at the time, I was just like, oh, well, if I know what, you know, why people are here and I'm aware of that, then I actually have like some power in the situation. But right. what I've come to realize is that it's always, that's always going to be a compromise. I'm always compromising a part of myself to enter into those kinds of agreements and kinds of spaces. And that's something that I've, that I've learned, um, that I just won't do anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't, you know, before I was like fine with straddling the line, but because of all of the social movements that happened during the pandemic and because of the pandemic, it had, I was forced to kind of like reckon with and, and try to understand more my role in this space and like what I, what I could do with the work that I, yeah, with the work that I took on. And then also, yeah, there was a situation. I can't like say a, a ton about it because I signed an NDA, but there's like a situation with this mm-hmm. this giant uh, global brand where um, I, I typically don't pitch ideas for projects. If I have an idea for something, I'll just use the resources that I have to make it on my own because I like the space. Again, like the time and space to, to move through a story. But I was like, oh, this could be a good opportunity mm. to pair with this this um, brand and have an idea that would be able to be to to reach platforms that I couldn't reach like on my own. Mm-hmm. And in that whole experience, uh, I pitched this idea. They wanted me to change it, and I said I didn't want to. And they were like, okay, we'll like walk away. But in the end, they were just like, this idea that you pitched, we're gonna we're gonna make it without you. So you can either say yes or you can say no and we're, we're just going to make it without you. And I felt completely powerless in that situation. And this is like a brand that promotes like a lot of black, black people or like queer folks. They're always like, I think they had a campaign where they're featuring like pregnant m- mothers, which was like really 
um, funny because they are they were also known to they had like these contracts where if if one of their talent had become pregnant then they would automatically like their pay rate would either either their contract would get canceled or their they would make a lot less money. Wow. It's funny. So here I am, they're promoting like queer and, and black folks and saying that they're there in support of and in solidarity with. And then here I am on the, you know, kind of like on the backside of it. And they're just like, well, if you don't want to participate, we'll just like take your idea and we'll get it made. And here I am, black queer woman. Yeah. And on one side, they're like trying to be this particular thing. So anyway, I just realized at that point that nobody in in that space um yeah nobody really cares about you or cares to like actually support you i think that really highlights that that performance i mean it's a perfect example of that performative activism and yeah. um, ideas are like actions speak louder than words and how do you like this and this is also i think this the social movements that have happened over the over the past year um on social media too there's this this expression where you see the brands and their Im what they're imaging out and then the people that uh, they've left behind or exploited or used being like, well, this is actually how this went down. Yeah. So I think it's a really very powerful story and it's unfortunately the reality of the 99% of that, uh, those big industries. And I think that that is another thing that I've been really interested in is, um, obviously holding people accountable, but holding corporations accountable because that is really, and that's not one person. Those are like big institutions mm -hmm. that these kind of things happen. And then it's like, what are you interested in? Are you interested in the work or are you interested in the image? Yeah. And I think it's like very conflicting because that, I mean, for me, I'm trying to move out of doing so much branded and commercial work, but that is the way that I've sustained myself as a freelancer. That's where you make I mean, for most freelancers, that's where you make most of your money. Right. Um, so part of that is like scary to think about, but I think about the ways that um, I feel conflicted or the ways that I've been taken advantage of. And I'm mm -hmm. like, there's no way I can continue doing that. I'm just going to have to figure out how to make this work. But I see peers of mine who are doing magazine covers and they're mm -hmm. working with like big celebrities. And I, I often wonder, um, how can you how can you make work how can you sustain yourself making work about other famous people or making work um, mm -hmm. for these corporations like what are the ways that we can because to me I mean there's there's a part that feels I mean of course I love to see when my friends are doing really well and they're mm -hmm. they're yeah just working with like big talent and and publications but there's a part of me that's also just like is this how we deem levels of success is this what it means to be mm -hmm. successful in your field is when you get to work and you land a cover for you land mm. um, working with this celebrity or, or or what are the ways that you can actually and I, and I know that everyone defines success for themselves differently but it, it's that's when I start to see the structure and mm. how I, I, I don't know it's like you're kind of slowly moved towards this this one particular kind of success and that's what I was like saying earlier if you're not careful about Mm. who you are and what you're trying to do mm -hmm. and what messages you stand for you can kind of like slowly be led towards this this model of success that doesn't really benefit anyone except the people that you work for mm. and because because mm -hmm. at the end of the day you get a paycheck for it but they get the intellectual property they get the rights they can continue to make money off of it when you just made money mm -hmm. like this one time and I know it could be like a portfolio piece but I don't know I um, just keep thinking uh, how do you how does your work actually 
live as your work and how do you continually benefit from what you do in the ways that corporations and the ways that brands and the ways that other people continually get to benefit from what you've done and put forth. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the, everything that you were saying, I think the most important and powerful part is like that you are working on protecting your energy. And like, that is really like mental health and who you work with and, and how you work is, is vital. Um, let's talk about, um, onset stuff because we're kind of heading in that direction and navigating work whilst it's happening. Um, I want to acknowledge just all the identities that come into play here because I want us really to, as we were doing, like really paint an honest picture of what sets are like right now. Um, in 2019, I think of the top grossing 100 films, in the United States, women compromised about 20% of directors, producers, executive di producers, editors, and cinematographers, Producers, they probably fared best at at like 26%, but cinematography, which is what you do, at only 2%. Mm -hmm. Now, it's also extremely difficult to find data because it's barely being tracked and that's a whole other thing, the whole data gap that exists. And that's a very major problem of what those numbers are truly like for women of color and for the LGBTQ plus community, uh, the ableism that comes into play here as well. So I just want to acknowledge that all of those identities come into play when you're just working on set, right? Not even in prep. Um, days can be extremely hard and long. How do you remain intact with your energy and maintain your energy on these long days in this kind of really collaborative work? Yeah, that's uh, so maybe maybe this is like a, a way that I've, I'm kind of lucky is that when I'm doing the branded and commercial work, Typically that those days are just like one to two days, maybe they might be three. So they're they're short compared to if you're working on a series or if you're working on um films like narrative films or like longer documentary films. So in a way, I feel like most of my energy is spent during pre-production and on on set it's just kind of like the plans in place. I know what I need to get to to get to the from you know, from start to finish. One thing that helps is that being a department head means I have control over a significant portion of, of crew and who I get to work with. So I, you know, that's all folks in camera, that's all folks in grip and electric. So at least I know in the space that I work with in my immediate crew that I can curate that and bring on folks that I work well with that I know won't be offensive or be rude um, and that are just there to be helpful and are mindful of all the intersectionalities that you um, pre previously described. And, and so far then it's just be um, just again, establishing that relationship with that director and making sure that's somebody that I, I want to work with. But mm -hmm. um, I definitely try to keep a space that is kind, supportive, communicative, yeah, and I try to work with, you know, for me, it's important that I'm working with other women, other folks of color, queer folks. Um, and that's, I found that's very easy to do on camera side, mm. but it's the grip and electric side that I, I feel like I still predominantly, and they're all very sweet and kind, but I, <laughs> but I still predominantly work with, with like white men. And that's something that I'm trying to um, expand more but on this short film that I did recently that was a very special experience because that was the first time in a while or maybe ever that I got to work on set um, when it was predominantly 
queer and queer folks of color. Mm-hmm. And that, even though those days were grueling, you know, 12, 13 hour days, um, because we were all there in this particular community and we all came from this similar understanding where we don't have to worry about how we present and we don't have to worry about like particular parts of our identities because it's it's shared across Mm. a majority of the crew member and and cast um that felt like a space where I could be all in with in a way that I haven't felt before where I still have to kind of like know that this is like a straight space or this is like a white space um or this is like a male space and on that set I didn't have to think about all of those things I didn't have to worry about I didn't really think much about myself in a way that I do on other that's where I'm feeling whether it's like I feel my queerness or I feel um, my race here or I feel my gender here um, that's definitely something I didn't feel on the last set and I was like that was a very very special mm. um, and unique space where I you know I gave much of my energy but I gave it be- because I felt like this was something much larger as opposed to again, giving, giving your energy for something that, I don't know, that is just kind of like a paycheck. Mm -hmm. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about filmmaking in a different form in video installations, more specifically your recent work, um, Know That I've Enjoyed Sunshine, which was a four channel installation, I believe, and Between One World and the Next, which was a single channel project um, at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in San Francisco. And then you also did Oklahoma is Black, which was in 2019. And that was a three channel installation, which is now being presented or screened as a short film um, at the Oklahoma Contemporary Museum in Oklahoma City. So what is your experience like with doing video installations and how has that differed kind of from uh, doing a short film or doing a music video? How do you show up differently for that kind of work? Yeah, this is a space I've just gotten into that I'm really interested and curious about because this is a place for me um, to explore cinematography as as a language and not necessarily like a like the visual language in relation to like the story as a whole when you're doing commercial work when you're doing um, more traditional like narrative documentary forms but but it's just like how does the image itself communicate a story Mm -hmm. and this is the space where I feel like I can ask these like larger questions it also is forcing me to break form or or break this way that I've come to learn about how images exist in film. Mm. Sometimes, yeah, like if it's a single channel installation, how do you present your work in that space? If it's four channels or multiple channels, how does each image in each monitor, like what's the timing of that? How do they work independently? How do they work together? And it's just, uh, it's like a new way of of image making Mm. um, that I, I remember with the YBCA project, I I struggled with it because I kept trying to stick it into this uh, narrative format. I kept trying to have it have like a beginning, middle and end, and it just wouldn't work for this, this type of space. So I had to think about things as moments or as a feeling or as an experience rather than a linear story with, with Clarice Lispector. One thing that I, I've learned from her is just like, okay, if an image is a, if you look as a single image as a letter, how do you put those letters together to make a word? How do you put those words together to make a sentence, to make like a longer form conversation? And that's the way, like an installation, I feel like that's the space that you can do that work in. 
And then also there's something about the physical space that you, that you can curate. Um, I know right now we can't go into museums, but what was really cool about uh, YBCA is that we got to project on the side of the building and we got to put stuff in the windows. So it became an outdoor installation. So it's like, what does it mean when people come and they spend time? What does it mean if people come in, in the middle of your, of your work? Will they still be able to understand the larger meaning? And what does it mean to witness something on a larger, on a larger scale? How do you think about sound? How do you think about the experience? How do you create something immersive in the physical space in a way that's very different from going into a theater, going into a black box and like being transported in a in a different way. I find I find video installation really interesting and it's some it's actually how I met filmmaking when I was in uni. Um, because we had this class called aesthetic inquiry and it was like how do you look at art right and how do we um like when you go to a museum and you see video installation do you just look at it or are you looking at yourself looking at it and or how are you mm -hmm. experiencing how are you interacting with um with the input and i find video installation and the this is kind of a new frontier really because there's so like it's constantly that technology is constantly updating and there's all these new programs and like you said, projecting onto the sides of buildings and uh, how do people feel and how do they interact with and kind of tracking the social part of, of, of art that is um, in that way uh, quite accessible versus like the passive experience of going to see a film and sitting in the chair in the dark and yeah, having that really, uh, that transportation. So I find video installation really interesting. And I, I love what you said about, um, about building outside of outside of the narrative idea but with letters and and putting that together your images for uh for example oklahoma is back are it's it's so amazing how as a viewer you get completely transported and engulfed into the subject or the environment because they are separate shots and tell us a bit about this project and how much footage did you have and how did you build its journey yeah so I got asked to do that project or more, I kind of asked if I could be a part of that project with my my good friend, Tatiana Fazalizadeh, who was like a co-director of that piece and who had the solo exhibit at Oklahoma Contemporary. So she works primarily in visual art. She does oil painting, wheat paste, um, and now is doing more mixed media. And for that exhibit, she was like, I want to incorporate video She's like, I'm not having a hard time finding a filmmaker. And I was like, can I, <laughs> I, I would love to do it. So she sent me um, like a few images from when she had last visited Oklahoma um, City because that's where she grew up. And they were black and white images. They were static and things were just kind of moving within the frame, very simple images. And so that kind of gave me the starting place for what I was like trying to do. Um, something that I learned when I was in grad school is just what, when you are an outsider to a community, um, how do you listen? How do you observe? How do you be respectful of the space um, that you're entering and the people that you are encountering? So I, you know, I talked to Tatiana. I, I asked her, like, tell me about the space that you grew up in. What is it like? I did my own research and I knew that, um, with each space that I entered and each person that I talked to that I was going to just try and you can never be completely objective, but mm -hmm. I was going to do my best to be as objective as I, as I could be. Um, and what we also did outside of just the visual imagery that, that is, that makes up Oklahoma's black is that we spent time with many of the folks that you see in, in the short, um, 
and we spoke to them for like an hour, a couple hours. So there are also these like long recorded interviews. And from there, I, I feel like I got the idea of what it was like to be in Oklahoma City as either a young queer black person or someone who's been there all their life mm-hmm. and you're like 80 or 90 um, or someone who has grown up and moved away and like has come back because they want to figure out ways to um, build and revitalize the community. So there are all these different stories that we heard. And from the stories, what I felt like is that it's a very complicated history. It's a very like painful history of all of the, you know, you think about Tulsa, you think about the massacre, you think about the bombings, you think about the devastation to black communities, but yet there still is Um, a vibrant Black community despite all of those atrocities. So for me, there's like something about resilience and Mm -hmm. something about power and something about beauty and something about loss. So I I didn't really know how all of that was going to come together, but I knew that those were the themes, that those were the emotions and feelings that I wanted to be weaved in, in, um, in that space. And Oklahoma's Black is something that I, that was like the first thing I made after reading Clarice Spector's work mm. and I was like oh this could be the space where I can see if I can actually apply that idea of thinking about images as as, as letters as words as opposed to doing something that was completely linear yeah and so you, you move around and you'll look at spaces where you'll be in a church and then the next thing you'll be outside on and seeing a young man riding a horse or you'll be in a barber shop and technically when you look at those images they may not go together, especially like you see a horse in the beginning and then you may not see the horse again till the middle or the, the end. But I, I think it all comes together as something as, as a whole. The sound, the score was made by my friend, Emily McLean. Mm-hmm. And I knew, again, I, I kind of explained to her what we, the stories of the folks that we spoke with and that I didn't want there to be like a bunch of lyrics, but more so it's like, how do you get to the essence of, of a feeling? And I feel like you can do that easily mm. in, a, in the voice and the human voice more easily than you can do in any other form of art. So um, I worked with her to kind of build that soundtrack. In terms of, of how much material we had, I spent a little less than a week there. And on the ground, we had to spend time like finding folks. So I probably only filmed for about four days and that wasn't continuous we were like driving around meeting folks all around Oklahoma um, City. You've worked a lot with vintage lenses too and working on film versus digital um, tell us a little bit about just what are your favorite like formats and your favorite lenses and like what's your relationship with film versus digital? So I use vintage lenses because I couldn't and still can't afford really nice modern lenses (laughs) they are very expensive yeah they're incredibly expensive so my personal toolkit is just made up of random vintage still lenses and i would do a lot of research online they're like these very serious photographers and they would rate these different lenses and basically if there are any kind of things deemed as flaws meaning like you know lenses flared too much or if there was like chromatic aberrations or if it wasn't 100% sharp, um, people would give these lenses really low marks. So I would go and find all of the quirky lenses that people didn't like, but had these very distinct characteristics, and I would buy them Mm -hmm. on eBay. (laughs) 
because they were like $20 or $30. Right. And yeah, so that's like kind of like my vintage lens collection. I still do that, even though I could probably buy like some nice lenses. I, I recently started getting into film probably like a couple of years ago. So Super 8, and I just got into 16 millimeter last year. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing, I just bought my first Folex. Mm-hmm. So that's doing, super um, exciting. <laughs> yeah, so I've been um, filming on that. It's been an expensive endeavor, but I... I, I I love it. I love the texture of it. I love that it's this like living thing mm-hmm. um, that you expose to light and it changes and then you develop it and it changes. Mm-hmm. What I also like is because I, I think about I have like a bunch of hard drives and mm-hmm. I'm like, well, what happens to media? You put it online, it lives on the cloud, and then it lives on these hard drives that just live in your closet and you right. <laughs> most of the time never revisit projects mm. like that. And so there's something about film that I like that you also have this physical um, archive of all the work that you've made. And it makes me think about one time I was on archive.org and I was just looking at trying to find, okay, like, can I find what were Black people doing and like, the 70s or the 60s or the 50s or the 30s like on film and I I couldn't find much except random bits of black folks working on farms or something or like working in the fields Um, and so I think the MoMA had an exhibit where they were talking about home movies and so they had this thing where if you had film of, of your family's home movies you could bring them in it'll get digitized, they'll digitize it for you and it gets archived because their, one of their um, arguments or commentary was that home movies actually lend, um, like lend a perspective into these like intimate moments. How did people Mm. celebrate birthdays? How did people spend their pastime? What did families look like? What did homes look like? Because that also reveals how much money folks had or what did the a certain family in Georgia looked like at this time and how are they living? When I, when I checked out that exhibit online, what stuck out to me was that, you know, most of the, the folks that brought in films were, were white and there was something from a black family, but it was stored incorrectly. So there, but it was really cool looking, but mm. um, mold had started to eat eat away at oh, the film wow. okay so you would get some kind of like clear images and then other parts you could just see the mold kind of like growing over the film which has like a again film is like this living thing so there's like something that 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 draws me to that but mm-hmm. you know even just seeing those videos I was like oh like who had the access to those resources to buy the camera buy the film get it processed and then and then I have the means to store it well over those decades because they, you know, believe that there was like, it was valuable or worth storing or who knows. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I started building my own personal archive, which is mostly just, you know, my friends, folks in my community in hopes that maybe someday, like I could digitize it and it could be like a time capsule of this, like these particular communities in my, in my life. So that there is this physical um, archive of how at least this small group of people lived during this time yeah i find that so um incredible and i find that so important because it is everything is history in the making right and it's so important i think that's um 
I don't, I don't know if this is something that the world is recently coming to, or I am coming to as a person, but just noticing that gap that exists that you mentioned and ways that you and I can make sure that no longer exists for future generations. And it's really looking ahead, which I think is really exciting. So much to talk about, um, <laughs> always too much. And I always try yeah. to fit in everything. And I'm just so grateful for us to have spent time together. And yeah. I know that the listeners are as well. Um, before we get to the last question, what's next for you and how can we keep uh, following your work? Um, I'm currently just kind of taking a break right now. Uh, yeah, I don't have any large project kind of planned. I mean, there is one project that I, it's been in the works and it's going to take some time, but it'll be the first feature film that I DP. Cool. And it's called A Lo-Fi Blues. And I'm very excited about it because my best friend Edna Thierry is actually the director. He's a screenwriter of the project. Um, it's going to be based in Oakland, where I lived for a very long time before I moved to LA. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it's centered it's centered around the lo-fi community, which is a community that um, that is very like dear to me in terms of you know there's a question that you asked earlier where I kind of draw inspiration from, and they are definitely a group that I draw inspiration from because they their their whole kind of um the way that they operate is that they use the resources that they have available to them and it kind of is like this like so they're a community of artists visual artists musicians um crafts crafts folks all kinds of things and it's all everything's community oriented folks are very supportive of one another mm-hmm. but they're all about the kind of like the deconstruction of things mm. um, and so I try to take a lot of what they do in their respective fields and I think about how that can translate to the work that I'm doing so yeah it's centered in Oakland it's centered around that community it's about an aging blues musician who believes his wife is trapped in uh, his his late wife is trapped in a and a record. So he's trying to like bring her back by, by uh, listening to that record and um, also befriending folks along the way. That's the larger project that's, that's in the works. And hopefully I think we might get to film that next year. Um, But yeah, that'll be, and then also my friend Winnie Wong, who's the producer. It's like, we've all been friends for a very long time and Mm -hmm. this will be our first feature film together. So in a lot of ways, it's very scary and daunting, but it's like the no other group of folks that I would rather like go into this my first feature film with. Really exciting. Um, I make sure to link everything that uh, is available um, in the show notes. The last question for you, Melinda, is if you could look at your younger self, um, I don't know, let's make her 14 years old. What would you say to her? <laughs> oh, 14. I would say, I w- yeah, that's, a, that's actually like kind of a tough question. I it think is, I would it is say... a tough question. I think there have been many times and I feel like there will be many more times where I've been incredibly doubtful of decisions that I've made of where I am in my life of who I am as a person, the things that I value, the things I believe in. I don't know if I would listen, you know, if I'd met my 14 year old self, I don't know if my 14 year old self would listen to me. I would just say the things that you feel most in your gut, um, those are the things that are true. And if you use those, because when I think about how I got to where mm-hmm. I am, it's been, it's always been listening to my, to my gut. And anytime I've tried to push past that or ignore that um, are times when I've 
been met with like great difficulty. But when I have given into the fear of like what it means to to listen to yourself on that level, um, I think I have like learned and grown and have been rewarded in in ways that I couldn't imagine. So I would tell my 14 year old self to just to trust that you have the answers within you. Thank you for listening to this episode. I've linked Melinda's beautiful work in the show notes. If you enjoyed what you heard as much as I enjoyed making it, which is a lot, please leave a five-star review and share the episodes on your socials and with your community. You can tag me at Nadine Rumor or the podcast at Podcast. I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Bye-bye.